Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue in this chapter uh, and in the series entitled The Heroes of Faith. Pastor Don and Nancy are with one of their daughters, uh, Katie, down in Georgia, and I'll be returning, uh, I think, probably later today, but it's my privilege to share God's Word this morning from Hebrews chapter 11. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, probably not thought about it the way I'm about to say it. Sometimes Christians talk about having a personal personal relationship with the Lord, and that's sort of how they describe uh, being a Christian and knowing, a, knowing Christ, that they have a personal relationship with the Lord. And I totally understand that. It's not strictly language that the Bible uses, but it, it makes sense when you think of what's being said. But it occurred to me, as often things do, um, all of us have a personal relationship with the Lord, right? He's a person. You're a person. He's a different kind of person, but we're both persons. He exists, you exist, you exist in the world he created, so every one of us is relating to God. The question is whether we have a right relationship with him, whether we're rightly relating to God. There's no real avoiding having a relationship with God, a relationship with the Lord. Ever since the fall, we're natural-born sinners at birth, and our default way of relating to God is unbelief and defiance and disobedience. Even if we sort of uh, kind of mask that and mute that, that's, the Bible says, where we start at enmity with God and really hostility towards Him, not gods of our own making, but the God that's really there because of our sin and guilt. But that's a relationship to God. It's just a wrong one. Conversion, then, becoming a Christian really and truly is the inception, the start, through the gospel and what the gospel tells us about who God really is and who we really are and explains about sin and the need for salvation and the way of atonement. All of that through the gospel message as it's unfolded and explained to us and the Holy Spirit illuminates our understanding. Through all of that, a person repents. They profoundly change their mind and they begin to relate to God from now on in a very different way. They begin to relate to God in faith. Faith. When it's real, Hebrews 11 is teaching us, is faith that will then be devoted to God in obedience. And so Hebrews 11 is teaching us what it really looks like to live in a right relationship with God, in an ongoing way of engaging with God in a faith that really obeys. Paul at the beginning of Romans and at the end of Romans, uses a phrase called the obedience of faith. And that's just a good way to describe what happens when conversion, and the word means a radical change, it's, you know, something's changed, something's been converted, different than what it was before. The person begins to live the life of obedience that arises from faith finds its way in a lot of our good hymns and gospel songs, including the familiar to many, 
trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And the two are linked together. And how inseparable that link is, is part of what we're learning from Hebrews chapter 11. And we certainly have an example of it in Abraham. And when I preached a few weeks ago, it was sort of Abraham part one in earlier verses in the chapter. Now we come to verse 17. And we just want to study what the life of Abraham teaches us about faith, about trusting God. And so it says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, more literally, when put to the test, and it's implied, it's, uh, the Bible scholars even call it a divine passive verb. When it's in the passive like this, it means God's doing it. When put to the test by God, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. By faith, that is, because he had faith in God, when God tested him, Abraham obeyed God because God had commanded him, mysterious as it was, to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. So what do we see? Faith obeys God consistently, habitually. That's the, the nature of faith. Look for other examples just to be reminded in uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 7. By faith Noah when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, build an ark to save his family. Why did he build an ark? Because God had commanded him to build an ark. And so even though, you know, again, it had never rained deluge kinds of rains before, and even if it had, anything that would, would look like a worldwide flood, it just would have just seemed entirely implausible. And... You know, the, the, if you've been to the place, I think, in northern Kentucky, I mean, just the, the sheer dimensions and magnitude. So there are all kinds of reasonable reasons not to or to wonder about doing it, but faith believes God, believes in God enough that when God commands, faith obeys. If God says build an ark, by faith, Noah builds an ark. Uh, in verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, but a place he knew nothing about. Uh, he was apparently a man of wealth in his native homeland, but he was striking out to a place he knew nothing about. But faith in God, if a person really trusts in God and God's character and God's supremacy, then faith obeys. And so when called to go to a place, it says, he obeyed and went. Moses' parents, in verse 23, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. That would have been big trouble with Pharaoh had they known about it. It was a dangerous thing to do. But why did they do it? In obedience to God and God's purposes. And Moses himself, in verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. If he would have been known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he would have been a man of ongoing wealth and influence. He would have had it made in life. So why chuck all that? Why give all that up? Because God commands it. 
And if you really, really believe by faith that God is who he says he is, then the right response to a divine command will be obedience. And so Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And it goes on and on there. Just to see again that it's built in, this whole chapter, and it's what's been kind of striking as I studied this specific passage, is telling us that faith just naturally, sort of inevitably, consistently produces obedience to God's word, to God's commands. Why then is the inspired writer of Hebrews giving his readers example after example of such radical, self-sacrificing, could-be-dangerous kind of obedience. I mean, that's what the chapter is really filled with. He knows that these people will honor the names that are in this chapter, but he's giving example after, after example of a trust in God that shows itself in radical, nothing-held-back obedience to God. Now, why is he doing that? Because they right now are being called to a radical, nothing held back, could be very dangerous obedience to God. Right now, for them, living faithfully as a Christian and not reverting back into Judaism to kind of hide, but to really confess Christ and remain committed to Christ is really going to cost them. It's going to mean severe disadvantage to them, suffering for them. And so he has to remind them, if people really have faith in God and trust in God, they will still obey God, in, even in the face of those kinds of circumstances. And uh, you see that, go back to chapter 10, in verse 32 to 39. And back in 19, my Bible list this whole section as a call to persevere. But verse 32 says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. That's one way of describing their conversion. The gospel is the light, and they received it by repentance and faith. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and prosecution, persecution, at other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. But they only knew that by faith. The better and lasting possessions would be in heaven and in eternity. They didn't actually have them yet. They only had them, they only possessed them by faith, because of trust in God. Then he says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And so that's what um, they had to embrace as well, that real faith and trust in God would produce obedience. It's a faith that works, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. When he's describing their conversion, he says, I remember unceasingly your work of faith, 
or in James, the famous uh, passage in James 2 about how faith and works go together. I won't read the whole passage, but eventually it kind of starts in verse 14, but by verse 20, James says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And exhibit A is the same person, the same situation that the writer of the Hebrews uses. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that, that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Trust, then obey. That's the inseparable link. So if there's no obeying going on, the Bible would say, well, there's really not faith that's present. Do you see that James uses Abraham's obedience regarding Isaac? as proof that true faith in God consistently produces obedience to God. But think again that phrase there in verse 17. When Abraham was put to the test by God. What was it that God was testing for? What was it that he was trying to find out about Abraham through this test of the offering up of Isaac? To answer that question, we need to go together to Genesis chapter 22. And this is such an extraordinary episode, story, and passage. Uh, a dozen sermons could come from it, and we just only have time to really think about the point the writer to the Hebrews seems to be making. But, you know, you can kind of put yourself in, with sanctified imagination into the place of Abraham in the midst of this remarkable story. It says the same thing in verse 1. Some time later, God tested Abraham. And again, what was he testing him for? What was God trying to find out? He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. <coughs> the passage just continues. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, he saddled his donkey, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw that place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And then this, we will worship. And then this remarkable kind of foreshadowing and hint. And then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire in the night. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Ab his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, 
God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now again, there are so many profound things going on in this passage and in this real event and episode. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, and Bible scholars agree Isaac wasn't a, you know, just a, a real young boy. He was probably late teens at the youngest, maybe well older than that. But Isaac is cooperating now what Abraham, his father, is doing. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. And this is our point. And again, it's the only point really we're going to try to make from the passage to get to today, even though it's an extraordinary passage. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. What was Abraham, what was the Lord testing for in this whole experience? Whether or not Abraham feared God. That is, really revered him supremely. I mean, Warren Worsby has a great saying, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And so, where we profess to be with God and in our spirituality is one thing. But a test like this shows, Abraham, do you really revere me? Do you regard me as so supreme that even when I make a request that just bursts all the boundaries of what seems right, that you're still going to do it? You're still going to obey? And even though Isaac is the one where all the covenant promises and their fulfillment are bound up with what happens to Isaac. So there's every reason in a way, again, not to want to do this. But Abraham proceeds and is ready to do it. Um, and the Lord intervenes through his angel, through his messenger. But the point is, now I know that you fear me because you haven't withheld even your dearly loved son. Talk about a link between faith in God and obedience to God, and there's really no boundary to what God can command and what God can act. That was the lesson about faith in God that the writer to the Hebrews wanted his readers to know. You can't back out when it means persecution or difficulty. Not if you really believe in God as he really is, and not if you really, truly trust in him. As one translation puts it, the Lord says to Abraham, Now I know that you're a God-fearing man. But I want us to compare what's said here with another key passage that was already read as our scripture reading this morning. Go back with me again to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because it's another passage about God testing people. And as I thought about it, that occurs 
frequently and importantly throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve were tested. Would they trust and obey? Did they? No, they didn't. And now Abraham was tested. Would he trust and obey? Yes, he did. And so Abraham in Romans 4 and James 2 and Hebrews 11, he is a hero of the faith. He had his problems, we know for sure. But at the core, he was a person whose trust in God led to obedience to God. <clears throat> so here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, be careful to follow every command, literally the entire commandment, the whole commandment I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter in and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. That struck me. Nothing that happened to them was random or accidental. God says, I led you all the way. Every stop, everything that happened, that was my providential leading. But then see why he was leading them. To humble and what? Test you. God is testing now the Israelites. Well, what's he looking for? To test you in order to know what was in your heart. Not just the profession of your lips. Not just the ideas in your head. But what was in your heart really? And then he gets more specific. Whether or not you would keep his commands. Whether or not your professed faith would lead you to obey. He humbled you. That wasn't random. He humbled, causing you to hunger. And then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. Why was he doing that? Another purpose statement. They were going through those providential hardship tests to teach you. To teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Then verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man, as a father disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you through his providentially arranged tests circumstances that he gives to you. Therefore, observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him. So, with Abraham, God was testing, does Abraham really fear me, revere me supremely? With the Israelites, God was testing what's really in their heart. Will they obey my commands? And will they learn this crucial lesson? Because God's Growing them up. It's child-rearing that's going on. Will they learn this absolutely crucial lesson that a human being does not live mostly or mainly only on bread and getting physical needs supplied? The true key to being a thriving human being is to live rightly responding to every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's absolutely vital that we get to the place where we really believe that. If it's a promise of God, we trust in it. If it's a command of God, we obey it. If it's a warning, we heed it. Whatever it might be, that's the crucial lesson that faith, true faith, learns. And that was what God was testing for 
when it came to the Israelites. That's what God was looking for. Add it all up in these passages from Hebrews, Genesis, and Deuteronomy, and you get this. God wants to make sure that people who profess to know him and to trust him really do by being God-fearing, commandment-keeping people. That's what matters. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. A bogus faith, a counterfeit faith, won't pe lead people to continue to disobey, to continue to obey. The Israelites were the proof of that. And back in chapter 3, the writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, and he's talking to professing Christians, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. And so God gives us circumstances that we experience, and he's testing us. He's looking for something. Will I, in this situation, in this hardship, obey? Will I live for God's glory? Will I follow his commands, whatever they are? Why? Because I trust in him and his goodness. He's going to bring me to salvation in the end. He's going to, in the end, bring me to the promised land to the fulfillment of all his promises to bless and to save and to make me eternally happy. If I really believe that, I'll trust in him and keep obeying. Obeying God then, keeping the commandments of God, because faith in God when it's real and really present in a heart and life leads to that kind of obedience. Obedience that's specific. That's important to notice. You remember the account of Saul? And Saul the king was commanded to kill all the Amalekites. And, uh, you know, that's another story, and there's mystery related to that. But, um, and, and, and Saul kind of improvised. He didn't kill all of them. He killed some of them, and he kept some back. And Samuel the prophet confronts him. And uh, Saul said, yep, I did, uh, I did just what the Lord said. I killed all the Amalekites and all of their livestock too. Bah. Bah. And Samuel's like, wait, well then what do I hear? And then Saul gives an explanation. Well, I didn't kill all of them. Improvised obedience. Us guessing what is pleasing to God that contradicts what God has actually commanded. What is Samuel saying? To obey, because Saul had said, well, yeah, I kept the lambs because I was going to worship you, Lord. I was going to do sacrifices. And Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. To actually keep the commands of God is better than acts of religious worship. And to hearken, to really listen to God's commands, than the fat of rams. 
and so specific obedience to the commands of God. That's what this chapter began with. Be careful to follow every command, the entire commandment. That's really several chapters in Deuteronomy. Or the every word again, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it doesn't end in the Old Testament. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The nature of the Great Commission. What does it mean to become a Christian once again? It becomes a person who is taught to obey everything Christ commands. Paul, the great apostle of free grace, wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, circumcision means nothing and uncircumcision means nothing. What matters is keeping God's commandments. And there from John, the apostle of love in 1 John 2, the way we may be sure that we know him is to keep his commandments. So what's the practical application of all of this if we really believe what God's word is telling us from Hebrews 11 this morning? It means, simple as it might, may sound, that the truly faithful Christian and the truly faithful congregation will be eager and intentional to learn and to live by all the Word of God, accurately and skillfully applying to whatever life situations we face. We will want to live by God's Word when it comes to every aspect of our lives. We'll want to obey all the commandments that apply to us and to our situation. And so in our divinely arranged relationships, in families, we'll do home and family and marriage and children and all of that according to the commandments of God. Faith obeys. Faith obeys every word that comes from the mouth of God. In your work, You'll do your work, you'll do your business, you'll carry out that vocation in obedience to all of the relevant commandments of God. When Paul described the conversion of the Thessalonians in chapter 1, he says they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, some people, it's just kind of religion sort of tacked onto their life in some way. It's just sort of one compartment of their life, one thing they sort of do. That is not what real Christianity is about. It is about a very intentional, God is God, Christ is Lord, and now in a very deliberate, all-encompassing, nothing-held-back kind of way, I am going to live for the glory of God, and that will take the form of keeping the specific commandments of God in whatever area it might be. As neighbors and as citizens, we don't have time to go there, but 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul reminds Christians' lives should be full of good works. Ephesians 2.10, we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that they should be our way of life. And so, in every sphere, that's what we're devoted to. That's what we give our time to, to doing the most God-honoring, others-serving good that we can possibly do. Again, with what happened yesterday in Virginia, it's a reminder and it's a calling that Christians who believe God's commands and God's word about what human beings are, we should do more than we're doing and we need to find ways to do it 
to combat racism and just the, the, the sin and the, the heresy that there are some races superior than others, that contradicts one of the word, many of the words of God. And so we do good in our lives by combating evil and working for justice that reflects the kingdom of God. Volunteering at the rescue mission, visiting the sick. Those things may sound simple, but Christian lives are devoted to doing good, keeping God's commandments. And then, the main thing that we've been commissioned to do is make disciples and evangelism. That's the central task of the church, isn't it? That's what Jesus left the disciples with that day when he gave the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. What I'm saying is, don't think of your Christianity as, well, I just I started doing some religious events now, and I go to a lot of religious events, and I go to a lot of religious activities. And the big event I go to every week is, or at least every other week or every something week, I go and I go to church, and I show up there. And my Christianity is just kind of going to the events and going to the program. The heart of it is living out our worship, Romans 12, 1, in the way that we live 24-7 the rest of the week and the rest of the time, and that our lives are filled with good works of loving, caring for others, meeting the needs of others, growing in Christ-likeness, all of those things edifying one another in the church and being committed to evangelism and to the world mission. That's how you do church. That's how you really live out the faith that obeys that we find here in Hebrews chapter 11. Now the events and programs are great if they're leading to the main things, evangelism and making disciples. But we can't get faked out and thinking that just showing up for activities and sort of enjoying them because they're religious and they're at the church is the same thing as really living out obedience to the Lord that the Bible describes in a place like Hebrews chapter 11. We're running out of time, but Hebrews chapter 10 reminds us, and we won't go to the passage, that's why we gather. The reason for meetings According to the New Testament, what you see there is to encourage one another to remain faithful in a way that remains obedient, in a way that remains engaged in doing what God has called us to do. There's a real simplicity to it. We can't get faked out by that either. We're just called to live for God's glory, to live in obedience to Him. And that includes doing good and doing evangelism and supporting the worldwide mission of the church. And so we gather, and we share God's word, and we pray, and we sing together to spur one another on for yet another week or another day for those kinds of love and good works. That's what the gathering is for, and that's what God has called us to. No wonder someone has said, a healthy, maturing believer is easily, edified. All you really need to do church, according to Hebrews, is the Word of God and the people of God, blessed by the Spirit of God, learning more and more about doing the will of God. 
That's the simplicity of it. And that's what Abraham reminds us of. So again, remember how we started. Every one of us in the room has a relationship with God. The right kind of relationship to Him is one where we've been taught by the gospel and by the word of God that the right way, day by day in simplicity, to engage with God is to trust and obey, to live by every command of Christ. So you've got to learn it in order to live by it. And then to live that out by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Conversion is when we start to live a life of faith in God that leads to obedience to God, just like Father Abraham. Trust and obey is not only the only way to be happy in Jesus, like the song says, it's also the only way of living that makes our gracious Savior happy. Pleasing to Him, Paul says in Colossians 1, in every respect. Because it's the only way of living that truly glorifies Him and is truly good for us and for others. So I know it's a simple idea and a simple connection. But please learn from Hebrews and all these examples that the sign of real and genuine faith is radical, all-encompassing, nothing held back, obedience to all the words of God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to just deepen in our understanding and application of what this will mean in our lives. That coming to Christ is this beginning of a time where we leave behind the old life, where we live for self, and there might have been some religion and spirituality on the edges, but we were really living for ourselves. But true conversion just transforms all of that. And now we see Christ for who He really is and you for who you really are as supreme. We supremely revere you. We put our trust for all our ultimate happiness in you. And when that's real, we will follow your commands, carry out your will, do the work that you've called us to do. Help us, Lord, to look to our own hearts and lives to see what that will mean and how that will truly apply even in this coming week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Trust and